look at the camera and what is up what's up guys i hope you guys are doing awesome i know i am welcome to the player versus live podcast as always my name is gabo and i will be your host my next guest is a very impressive scientist his work and his research on the gaming sphere is some of the most innovative work i've seen so far he's a neurologist a neuroscientist who is super passionate about developing new technologies that will help enhance brain function and ultimately improve our quality of life. He's found several different companies with this purpose and that will help him achieve his vision, such as SenseSync, a company that is pushing the boundaries of VR technologies, a research center called NeuroEscape, a place where he gets to study interactive experiences and how they interface with our brain, and most notably, Achille Interactive, the company behind the game Endeavor RX, the first video game that qualifies as digital medicine and is used to treat ADHD, Attention Deficit Disorder. Guys, it is so important that in our world, we have scientists that have visionary and innovative perspectives. So, if there's someone out there that is creating games and researching gaming technologies, that will have real-life implications on our humanity, it is our guest. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Please welcome Adam Ghazali. Well, Adam, I have to thank you very, very deeply for being present here in this podcast. I, uh, I appreciate you coming here a lot because I'm very excited to talk to you. My pleasure. So... I'm very interested. How did you start this entire process of looking into video games through a neuroscience background? Can you just give us a brief summary of your professional background and what kind of projects are you really interested in investigating? Sure. So my background, I am a, a MD, PhD. I'm a, both a neurologist and a neuroscientist. I've been at University of California, San Francisco as a professor for 15 years and I run a research center there called Neuroscape. And I've also started several companies, um, notably Achille Interactive, uh, which has sort of been responsible for commercializing some of our research efforts in the academic side. Um, and Neuroscape is a unique center for a research group in an academic uh, setting like a university in that we develop technologies that are designed to improve brain function, cognition, and particularly usually attention. And then we do the deep dive research studies to figure out if they are having efficacy. As a neurologist, uh, and, and I'm sure it's true for my colleagues in psychiatry, there's a lot of frustration with us not having the tools to help many people who are suffering from, you know, the wide range of conditions that affect cognition. And I'm defining that broadly to include attention and memory and mood regulation, anxiety. We are just really without the appropriate therapeutic approaches to really help people uh, in a meaningful way or without side effect. And so I was encouraged to try to think out of the box around, I guess, over a decade now and think about how an interactive experience might be designed in a targeted way to be delivered in a personalized manner to help challenge uh, people such that it improves their function, their cognitive function, and then capture that outside of the gameplay to show that it actually has tangible, meaningful benefits beyond the gameplay itself. Right, so we're talking about games like this is the dream of the game industry. You create a game that has some ramifications in someone else's life, but the skills or the uh, training that you get in the video game actually applies to our physical and real uh, experience. It seems like your, your work and your research is coming out of a science fiction movie or something <laughs> like that. What is your mission, You're the big picture behind all of these endeavors? Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll even joke with my team that we're, you know, a science fiction laboratory <laughs> uh, because I, I am certainly motivated by science fiction visions of the future, even those from the distant past. I would love us to embrace technology in such a way that it could benefit our 
humanity um, beyond what it has done for entertainment and communication. I think that it has a real opportunity to help us think better, for lack of a better term. I, I wrote a piece several years ago called The Cognition Crisis, where I sort of outlined my view that we are suffering as a species right now in terms of our minds. We're not evolving it. We're not, we're not advancing it the way I believe is necessary to manage in this modern era of constant access to information. And if we do not figure out how to think better, to focus our attention and sustain it, to have time-delayed thought process and decision-making, to have greater levels of empathy and compassion, if we don't accomplish this, then I believe that we will never address any of the other crises that we need to, like climate change being a notable one. Hmm. So my big picture is how do we fix the brain uh, for those that are suffering and just help everyone else just reach the next level. And I don't believe it's going to be a simple pill that will accomplish that. We've been trying to do that for 70 years. That magic brain pill hmm. is, 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 you know, has been the dream and it would be wonderful. It'd be nice and easy and convenient. Just pop it in your mouth and there you go. No more schizophrenia and autism and depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, just gone. Hmm. But we haven't done that. And so it's, I don't think it's going to be that easy. It's going to take work and that's not necessarily a bad thing. What are the methods, means and methods that you are using in order to solve this cognition crisis? Yeah, so when we think about how to build new tools to help with cognition, as I said, broadly defined, includes things like emotional regulation, anxiety, in addition to attention and memory. We are designing interactive experiences that are targeted to different neural networks and different cognitive operations. And there's a, you know, a vast field of cognitive neuroscience that has helped us understand what type of interactivity leads to selective network activation in certain ways. So we can pull on the uh, scientific and neuroscientific basis in our design principles. But once we have the sort of core interactive mechanics, then it's a matter of delivering it in a way that is adaptive, what we call a closed loop. I can talk about that in more detail mm -hmm. and in a way that's fun <laughs> and engaging because if it's not, if there's no level of immersion, the plasticity that's induced by that experience is not going to be as profound and, and as meaningful and as sustainable. Those are the three, I'd say, core ingredients. One is what, what are the mechanics? What are the, the fundamental interactions that we want a player to engage in that we think will lead to selective network activation? And then what, how do we make that adaptive and closed loop? And how do we make it fun? So though, you know, that process involves a very multidisciplinary team. And it usually takes us a couple of years iteratively to keep creating and then right. improving and testing before we go into our research studies. Is there a reason why you're calling them interactive experiences? Uh, is there a reason why you are reluctant to use the word games? No, or just because it doesn't have to be a game, because some of mm -hmm. them are not games. And some of them are games. Uh, so it, it depends. And, you know, I usually distinguish between them depending on how fun it is really to tell you the truth. Okay. And some of them, you know, they're really just a lot more bare bones. I think the ultimate level that we achieve is when we have a video game. Once we validate the basic mechanics as having some benefit, then we might try to achieve these interactive experiences as video games. And video games are a lot more engineering uh, work, a lot greater in my in my particular vision of what a video game is and should be much more involvement of artists and musicians and storytellers mm -hmm. and ui experts and we don't always fully get there that i'm comfortable saying this is a video game sometimes right. we do right. um, and, and a lot of times we do and then sometimes it's it's only in the further iterations after it like leaves the lab and goes on to become a product that it might reach the true video game status. That is, a, is usually our goal, although it doesn't have to be. I just, I really like 
the delivery of an experiential treatment, I think of these as, if, if they're in the clinical domain, as experiential medicine. I like the delivery of that if it's going to be digitally delivered. To me, the most satisfying way is to do so in the form of a video game. So it, yeah, so it seems to that that is the somewhat the ultimate goal that if you want to target a specific aspect of the brain, you want to deliver it in a video game. If you can build the game at a high enough level um, where there's deep engagement in the moment and sustained engagement over time, we can show these benefits. And what I suspect is that why other groups have struggled with brain games to show benefits is that they have not given as much attention to the game side of it as they maybe should have. From uh, just an outsider's perspective, that from a societal point of view, I've witnessed in my life people dismissing video games as as a relatively interesting tool to interact with our brains they you often hear the phrase it's just a game it's almost like a hasty conclusion of a technology that we're still trying to understand as a culture what do you think about about this outsized perspective i mean video games are quite complicated in terms of how people perceive them and i get that all the time uh you know as as we could talk about i've taken video games and places that no one has before right we have a fda approved video game right now right And so it really challenges people to think about video games differently. But a lot of people will look at video games through their eyes of their own personal experience or their family. They might see it as the type of thing that prevents their child from engaging in conversation at the dinner table or going outside to play. And thus it becomes the enemy and something that is detracting. And it may be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, every everything has pluses and minuses in the world. You know, the yin-yang of, of nature is is dominant and, and pervasive. And I think it's true for video games as it's true for, for pretty much everything. And so depending on the lens that you're looking at video games, you might have some really strong feelings about it. As we know, a lot of the negative views are related to violent content in video games. And I'd say the other big thing is overusage of video games. And, and they're, right. both, they're both true, they're both there. And you could debate how impactful it is, uh, but it's, to me, it's understandable why people struggle with it. Some people struggle with it. Uh, if you just step out of the moment at, in time where video games might have some violent content and other aspects of it, and just think about games in general, uh, there's a lot to be excited about. I think it's one of the most amazing aspects of being human is the is the is our play, and all animals play, or many animals play to some degree. Right. But I think human play is really exceptional, and it's important to have fun. Fun is not trivial to me, and I think that if you embrace it as opposed to think about it as something that is frivolous, there's a lot that that we can gain by it, and that's sort of been our story all along it's like don't hide from video games there they have challenges but they could be amazing play and fun and, and human engagement is critical and if you could take that perspective and tie in those fundamental features with other aspects like closed loop neural network targeting and adaptive <laughs> uh play then you could take games into an entire new genre which is exactly what we've accomplished that's what inspiring to me about the work because if you take um, if you take a look at what we were talking about before and go into science fiction, um, like the books that come to mind are Ender's Game or something like Ready Player One, where we use games as a way to fo- to combine science and art to create an experiment for the entire world and. That ability to play and to look at our limitations is almost ingrained in our soul. It could be as, as ethereal as good and evil. Do you think we can reach a point with your research that we are creating experiential medicine that is massively consumed? That's the goal. My challenge and our whole team at Neuroscape and, and now at Achille has been to think about not just the development and validation of new type of medicine, which is a big enough challenge, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it involves just 
you know, deep, deep design work and, and iterative R&D and then large scale clinical trials. It is a decade of effort of hundreds of people. We have done that, but that's not enough. That is still mind an academic exercise until it gets into people's lives and has a benefit. And if you're going to benefit a very small segment of people, then we failed. It wasn't worth the effort, the time and the money. The goal is to help address the tremendous burden of suffering. And it's a global problem. You know, we know that as infectious disease and cardiac uh, disease has declined, even what we've just witnessed with rapid vaccine production with COVID-19, we see an increase in anxiety and and depression and suicide, especially in young people, still increasing memory and dementia in older adults as that population increases. And we don't have solutions. So the goal here is not a niche, like very small impact. The goal is massive dissemination of new medicine. That's, that's the dream that, that we're trying to accomplish. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the closed-loop systems that allow you to target a specific parts of our cognition to be enhanced. Can you speak right about what are the as- different aspects of cognition that we're trying to target and explain a little bit more how these closed-loop systems work? Great. That's, that's a lot to talk about there. So there's the general layout and approach in building a game that's a closed-loop video game. And then there's the particular game and what it's targeting. So I'll, I'll talk about it from both perspectives. From, from a general perspective, a closed-loop video game engages a system, an adaptive feedback system that allows the elements of the experience, the stimuli, the challenges, the rewards, to be updated in real time based upon an individual's state. That state might be their level of performance. It might be their stress, their attention, other aspects of cognition, um, their awareness, their arousal, that creates an environment that's perfectly adapted to that individual in the moment. The reason that we're doing that is because there's so much individual differences. And if you don't challenge and reward someone or give them the environmental stimuli that are most appropriate to them, they're not going to engage deeply. They're not going to be sort of pushed to the level that you need to do um, in order to harness plasticity and drive performance and improvements and function improvements. And so that's the core of everything that we create in Achilles is the closed loop system. And closed loop systems are used in many other fields, um, usually outside of medicine. So the most obvious example that most people have, although I don't have it in my home, are, um, are you know, cooling systems uh, and heating systems of homes where a thermometer is detecting the temperature, the ambient temperature. And then that data is used to make a decision on an effect or something that's going to either cool or heat to maintain equilibrium. And if it does so rapidly in real time, the temperature remains at equilibrium and you have a 70 degree room Uh, that doesn't vary. That same system is exactly what we use in our video games. So there were two parts to it. One is the sensor, right? Either Mm -hmm. detecting of the temperature in the room or the detecting of your performance or your, um, your attention, looking at brain activity or your emotional state, and then is the output of it, right? How then, it, if so, for the thermometer example, it is the cooling or heating system. And for the video game, it is the challenge or the reward and the stimuli. And so the same way that a closed loop system in terms of a home heating or cooling unit would maintain temperature, maintain equilibrium, that's what our closed loop system does. It basically maintains the challenges and the rewards so that your performance is is locked right in there. And it sets it at a level that's comfortable for you, just like a a thermometer and and a home system is going to set, let's say, 70 degrees. We Mm -hmm. set it at like 70% success. If 100% success, if you were getting 100% right in every game you played, you'd be like, this game is too easy and it's boring for me. Right. If it was 40%, you would hate it. It would be too hard. So there's a sweet spot in there. We spent a lot of time looking for that sweet spot, that 70-degree temperature, that perfect setting. And once we obtain it, that's where you play. So the games are very satisfying to play. 
play on, you know, once the system finds out enough about you to challenge you right at that sweet spot. Now, if you didn't have plasticity, if your brain did not have the ability to modify itself, that's where you would play forever and ever. But that's not what happens. What happens is that you learn and your brain changes. And what was perfect for you on day one is too easy for you on day seven. But because it's a closed loop system, it automatically adjusts all of the elements of the gameplay, just ratchet up invisibly to you because it's happening slowly. And so you're still playing that game in the sweet spot. It's just a harder game. And so that's essentially how it works as the weeks. And then, you know, some games months or, you know, many weeks pass, you're playing the same game, but the game is sliding along this adaptive personalized scale to keep you in that sweet spot the whole time. And that's how we harness plasticity and keep you along for the ride. So that's the, that's the general description of the closed loop system that we use in our games. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, from my gaming perspective, definitely that's why ranking ranked <laughs> gameplay is so, so fun is because you keep constant, there's this constant feedback from the game telling you, oh, you're getting better at this. Now you're getting more challenged by playing other people of the same level. Mm -hmm. What are exactly are we measuring when it comes to these closed loop systems? What are we targeting? Yeah, that's great. So it, it depends on the game and it depends on the technology that you're using. So now we can get into the specifics. So for NeuroRacer, which became EndeavorX, which is now FDA approved as a treatment for um, inattention in ADHD. So mm -hmm. first, first video game that ever reached the FDA approval level started as a game called NeuroRacer 10 years ago in, uh, in my lab at UCSF. And in that game, so it was a closed loop video game, but the interactivity could vary from game to game. We have games that you play with your eyes closed and the interactivity is all internal, focusing on breath like meditation. In NeuroRace and EndeavorX, it's like an action video game. So you're seeing, you're moving through an environment, a 3D environment, and you have targets that you have to collect as fast as you can. And you have to ignore other distractors. And sometimes you have to switch to new targets. And so it's a lot of demands, which is the hypothesis that if we could push your brain to get better and better in this, what we call a high interference environment, lots of competing goals, multiple mm. distractors, we will see benefits in your ability to deploy your attention in different contexts, especially in boring contexts. That was the whole hypothesis behind NeuroRacer and why it's now prescribable for ADHD and that the benefits leave the game and become better attention outside of gameplay. Particular game in NeuroRacer and EndeavorX, what we're recording there is gameplay performance, how fast you are at responding to targets, how accurate you are in both hitting the correct targets and ignoring the irrelevant ones. There's other aspects of gameplay and how you navigate using, it used to be a joystick, now it's an accelerometer. So there's multiple aspects of performance that are being recorded multiple times a second. And that data is updating the challenges and the rewards and the environments that you're in. That's how that particular game works. But for other games, it's different things. And it could be beyond performance. We could, re like right now, what we're doing at Neuroscape is recording neural activity, recording emotional or autonomic responses using sensors, um, facial expression. We're, you know, we're looking at any possible way to understand how that player, that individual is responding in the moment, even if it's not accessible to them, that data can all be put into the closed loop system to drive the loop. Interesting. So when, you, when you're talking about the performance of, of somebody in their gameplay, it, it, that's an indicator of how much attention they're spending in, or how much attention they're being able to allocate into the game? Or, yeah, okay. yeah, it's an it's an indicator of that, and it's not just it, it's a lot of that game. That particular game relies on speed of response, mm -hmm. and speed of response could be just ba a basic metric of processing speed. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing it over time, and you have the baseline for the individual, it becomes a pretty accurate indicator of their attention. Right. So you're trying to focus and target attention to make uh, the person who's playing get challenged by 
providing a lot of interference while they're playing. And then the hypothesis is that if we get good at this game, then we potentially are able to use that skill and have prolonged periods of attention. Exactly. And, you know, where many people suffer is not deployment of attention on video games. It's deployment of attention in a classroom <laughs> or right. at work or while driving or while having a conversation. You know, there's, there are less engaging environments than video games. So our goal right. here was not just to get people better at video games. It was based on our research and a lot of other cognitive neuroscience research that there are common neural networks that are engaged in the brain when you deploy your attention in a rich environment like a video game to the same networks that are deployed when you try to pay attention in a boring classroom. Right. And, and so that is what we found. We have neural data that supports that, that those networks uh, in the brain can be engaged more robustly, not just in this environment, but environments where it previously suffered, which is those really boring, you know, low stimulation contexts. Help me understand a little bit what's going on in our minds when all of a sudden we're super invested in playing an intense game of chess, for example. Because from my point of view, games seem to be a very uh, incredible tool to induce a state of flow, concentration, and attention, as you've explained in this particular case of Endeavor. What's going on in our brains? Why is it that, why is it that we get so focused? We get in this elusive flow state. There's still a lot we do not understand about flow and, you know, all the different ways that it's been defined where you sort of lose track of time and, you know, you, you become so engaged that you are solely and singularly focused with no distraction. It's, a, you know, this special state that surfers talk about and video game players talk about. Effortlessly. Yeah, effortlessly and timelessly, right? Time just changes. Your perception of time is completely different mm -hmm. when you're in these states. And we're still trying to figure a lot of that out. It's one of our main goals because when we can obtain that, we believe that plasticity would be heightened by having more um, more intensity and more uh, more sustained engagement and deeper engagement of those networks. But the things we know is that, you know, they're complicated interactions of the person's predilections and their experience and their past, their memories, the things that have activated them before and the rewards that are being presented in that particular type of engagement. It's complex, but that is the goal is to understand that better. I, I would be curious to find out there's a specific area of our brain that is working more or like an area that is not working, perhaps. Do we know anything about that? Well, usually when we are discussing high level, complex, even very human type of cognitions and, and behaviors, it's not really a single brain area that's guiding it. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we do have modularity and specificity in terms of neural uh, functioning, uh, like the visual cortex and the auditory cortex and the motor strip that you can reduce down to very simple responses. But when you are talking about attention and decision-making and flow states and consciousness in general, think about them as emergent properties of network activity, meaning that there are many different brain areas that are dynamically communicating with each other uh, in ways that we're still trying to understand. These are more difficult systems uh, to analyze than if there was a single focus that just was mm -hmm. responsible for flow. That's really the neuroscience and signal processing challenge is to assess how network properties of the brain, interactive, dynamic, regional communications lead to these abilities. And do you think that these games can also have a physiological uh, consequences? Meaning like we, we get more brain synapses or <laughs> that's, that's oh, the kind of... Undoubtedly. I mean, plasticity occurs at every level of the nervous system. So whether you're looking at structure like, you know, synapses or dendrites or axons or spines along dendrites, or you're looking at physiological measures, maybe even neural oscillations 
or neurochemical levels, the brain changes it, all of these, you know, mm -hmm. it's all part of a complex system that leads to the functions that are that we capture on the other side that are our behaviors. But plasticity affects it all. <laughs> so sure. Um, and it's not anything necessarily special about our video games that does that. That's just the basis of all learning. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to target it more selectively and to lead to more meaningful changes that then become sustainable. I've, I've heard you use this word plasticity to talk about brain plasticity because I can wrap the concept in my head. How would you define brain plasticity? Pretty much in the way that I've been talking about. Maybe I'll just put it all together more concisely. The brain plasticity is this phenomena that's now well studied, uh, but not that there's not more to learn about it, by which our brain... Uh, modifies itself in response to experience and injury. Uh, mm. So it could be part of learning and it could be part of recovery. And a lot of the work that has gone on and Nobel Prizes have been distributed to elucidate what are the molecular mechanisms that, that lead to change. For example, memory is a type of plasticity. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can have an experience and then have a retained signal, information that persists memory over time requires plasticity and changes in the synaptic potentials and the ability of them to be activated by that same signal coming back again, mm -hmm. where you remember that that has occurred. And it could occur throughout, you know, all of development, it could recur for learning when we're older. So, you know, plasticity is the modification of the brain and the nervous system um, in response to pressure uh, from the environment through experience or through injury. And you can see the hallmarks of that change at pretty much every level of analysis. So it's basically saying as, as you live your life and you experience your life, your brain is constantly adapting itself to, to, for, based on those experiences. Yeah, you have a different brain all the time because of it. It's not like that's your brain. It's mm -hmm. just a structure. It's, it's constantly adaptive. This is that's interesting. So is there a a specific kind of time in our development of our brain where for example, as we grow older, does our plasticity then become lower? The, mm -hmm. We we lose plasticity, brain plasticity as we get older? Yeah, that seems to be the case. It's probably highest when we're born. Mhm. Mm and you're, you know, I mean think about what a baby can learn over or, you know, learning a language right. when you're a very young child, what that's like compared to when you're older. And a lot of that is related to changes in the sort of robustness of the plasticity response. There was a time when it was thought that maybe plasticity stopped essentially after these critical stages of development. And then any change that occurred was a degenerative change. Right. Uh, but now we know that's not true. A matter of fact, a lot of the research that I've done since I was a graduate student 30 years ago, looking at animal models of response, plasticity responses to injury and to aging, really was showing what others have now supported and others have shown as well, that plasticity is retained in the aging brain, but it is diminished. Finding tools to help induce greater plasticity is something that's very interesting to me right. because they could then be combined with our video games to lead to better outcomes. So that's something that is interesting to me. So it's also about improving your quality of life throughout, throughout your entire lifespan. That's really cool. That's really cool. So now, what are the, the interesting technologies that you see emerging that you're interested in experimenting with, such as virtual reality or mm -hmm. even um, sensory feedback, like a vest, mm -hmm. like a haptic vest, mm -hmm. um, omnidirectional treadmills, things like this that are very, very interesting technologies to that come to video game to the video game industry and can definitely make a leap forward, right? So, in your mind, what are those technologies? Yeah. So. I think about technologies that could contribute to our closed loop video games and experiential medicine, the bigger term I think about as, as falling on, on both sides of the closed loop. Mm -hmm. So on one side of the closed loop is the recording side, right. right? How do we really know what you're experiencing in the moment? Right? So performance is a great 
surrogate of what's happening in your brain. If you're fast, then you're probably paying attention and you probably have good motor skills, right? We learn a lot about you from the challenges that you get and how you respond to them. But sometimes things are inaccessible through performance. And so we're very interested in technologies like biosensor technology, like advances in brain imaging and EEG, latest high density EEG. And of course, uh, other types of biometric sensors that can detect, you know, very subtle changes in, in skin conductivity to look at your emotional responses, advances in eye tracking and pupillometry and facial expression <laughs> recording, on and on. There are many technologies that are that we believe when combined with advances in signal processing and machine learning will give us a better window into what is happening to an individual in the moment, even if it's inaccessible to them, and even if it's not apparent through any type of performance outcome. Mm -hmm. So then states that are really inaccessible, like meditation and sleep, become not black boxes anymore. So that's, right. that's one way of thinking about technology. And there's a lot of technology there and a lot of engineering on that side that we're excited about and that we're pursuing actively at, Neuro at Neuroscape. Then on the other side of the closed loop, so once you know what's happening to someone, right. then you want to create an environment to maximally challenge or reward them or, you know, doing all, all of the type of feedback that we just described that helps challenge their brain and, and drive its optimization appropriately. You can do it with a tablet or a phone. It's quite powerful, right? They're beautiful. They're fast. They're accessible. They're, you know, they're affordable. It's amazing. We spend a lot of time on mobile technology for those reasons, but... Right. We also hypothesize that if you are in a more immersive, more real world environment, digitally induced environment, that you will have even greater outcomes from the closed loop experience. And therefore, we spend a lot of time looking at virtual reality technology, both head mounted displays, but we're also interested in tactile feedback. We're interested in olfactory stimulation through sense. Uh, and then we're interested in how do you move in 3D space so that it's more real world. How do you move your legs? How do you walk and reach? And we're interested in all of it. And we use all of it pretty much. So that's how I think about technology on both sides of the closed loop. I want to get into one of your other companies, SenseSync, which is, uh, excuse me if I'm butchering the, it, but I, from what my understanding is a company that is researching how virtual reality and sensory synchronization can create a, an environment that can induce a, some sort of relaxation and brain restoration, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So since Sync was based on a couple of principles, the first is that most of the VR that we see and talk about are basically a head-mounted display and headphones, which is great. And it's fine. And, and I'm, I'm really excited by how that field is developing. But it's only so real if you can't feel and you can't smell in those in those environments. And how do we uh, bring together much richer sensory stimulation? And then how do we advance the synchronization of those stimuli? So when we interact with the world, what makes it so real? What our brain interprets as reality and interprets as like a unified object or a unified place is because the signals are synchronized in time. Mm. You hear, see, smell, and feel at the same time. It is one event. It is one place that you're in. And in my opinion, this concept, which in, in neuroscience is known as multisensory integration, has not been really explored to its limits in the virtual reality domain. So since Sync's first goal was, was an attempt at bringing together every type of sensory stimulation you can imagine into one experience. And then there's what do you do with that? And there's a, many, many things. Right. Um, the first target of SenseSync, what I was interested in was passive experiences. So we've been talking about interactive experiences this entire time. And Interactive experiences are amazing because you get all these, you know, very complex challenge-driven feedback loops. But there's a lot that could be done with passive viewing, a passive experiential um, engagement, uh, especially in nature. That's what really interested me. So would being immersed in a sensory environment, we created this device that we call a vessel. People think of it as a pod. I think of it as a vessel because I think of it as a way of transporting you, a vehicle for your mind to travel. Imagine it as good as it can be. You're in this 
nature environment where you could smell the trees and feel the wind on your face and look around and see a waterfall and, and feel the, you know, the mist. Could you lower your stress and step out of your, your burdens of your day if you're immersed in, in an in a, in a environment like that? And I think that's a really exciting potential for technology. And so can you deliver essentially like a massage for your brain, which is how I always think of it, a deep brain massage using technology in this way. I don't feel like we've gotten there before. And that's why since sync was created to help us get closer to that. Yeah. When I think about the, ex the kind of experiences that I've had when I decide to take time off from work or my profession, um, a lot of my friends, I like to go rock climbing. It's like the thing that I do. It, it puts me in a completely new environment that it's uh, very apart. The challenges and the goals that I have are completely separate from my professional environment. And uh, it has a completely different effect on my mind and my, my restoration of my brain as opposed to staying at home and watching TV. So there's something about the brain there that it seems to have a very particular way of relaxing and restoring itself the idea that these virtual worlds that they can provide real experiences as we know it but they can also take us to mars or mm -hmm. an environment that is completely new and we haven't experienced just being in a completely new environment seems to have an effect on our brain and mm -hmm. to to induce some sort of restoration reset of our mindset there's the bigger vision that technology can be used to create experiences for outcomes beyond entertainment. Every group and every individual and every company is going to have a focus that they try to accomplish something meaningful there. And, you know, I've described to you some of the things that we focused on, but you're right. The space is much, much larger, which is wonderful. There's an entire room for a field, you know, a whole field to be, um, you know, created around all the different ways that these experiences might induce benefits. And that's, you know, super exciting. If it was just, you know, one particular outcome, then it wouldn't be a field and it wouldn't have quite the potential to make a difference that I believe it will. Tell me a little bit about Gnomes and Goblins, because I this is a game, a virtual world that you've created with uh, John Favreau, I believe. Um, well... Well, it was, it, it's really John and Weaver and, you know, I've, I've been in, in, engaged over the years in, in, um, you know, conversations with them, but it's, it, but it's really their creation. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take okay. credit for it, All right. but, but right. I do think it's, um, it's a really, it's something I'm really impressed with, which is why I've talked about it before. Maybe it seemed like I was more, more um, involved in its creation because what, what I watched John and, and his, and the team at we Weaver do is really bring in AI in really clever ways to create an engagement with these little creatures that was responsive. So it has a lot of similarities to, to the work that we do in that you could have um, a closer relationship with a virtual character because it is responding to you in a way that is mimics how you might interact mm -hmm. with a person or a creature in, in the real world. To me, it was a really exciting example of the potential of VR in what, uh, what those guys are doing with Gnomes and Goblins. All right. Excuse me for overstating oh, your, your, your influence uh, on that not project. A not, just, not a problem. I just thought it was um, a very interesting take on a, on a, on a medium that, uh, I personally, the way that I've experienced virtual reality, um, I haven't experienced something like that yet, right? Something where the world is completely different and it can react to me picking up a flower and all of a sudden in sensing if, if, if we could evolve this, I could smell the flower that's from a different planet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I, you know, I, I try to look for those examples in virtual reality that really are pushing the envelope on what is capable, even if we're not there yet, because we know that these are really technically challenging. And 
And, you know, from, from John Favreau's perspective and having talked with him a lot about this and others that are in the movie industry, storytelling is completely different in virtual reality where you have mm. a lot more agency. Maybe you're not looking at the main character anymore in a movie, like there's nothing else to look at. So this is a, a, a challenge both technically and also from a production standpoint from, you know, people that have engaged in storytelling in different industries. So I, I just find it fascinating. Now, I'm curious about, I want to ask a, a little bit more questions about Endeavor because it, does Endeavor do all the legwork or do you actually have to have supplemental activities to uh, the game in order to um, see the full potential of the benefits? That's a great, great question. Right, right now, all of the research that has been done, Endeavor was delivered in isolation of any other complementary treatments. And those mm -hmm. complementary treatments could be uh, another game. It could be a meditation practice. There actually is data now from, I should correct myself, from a most recent paper with Endeavor where children with ADHD either had stimulants on board, you know, the current treatment, uh, pharmaceutical treatment for ADHD or not. And it was found that the benefits occurred independent of them. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there was a boost from having both of them. But right now, Endeavor is the research on it is essentially in isolation. And I, I think it's an incredible area of, of you know, potential uh, that we might couple Endeavor with other tools to even lead to better, better effects. So what's on the other side of the cognition crisis? What is the world that you you visualize and you envision when you're trying to resolve this uh what is the outcome that you would like for a, a human being who is going under these experiments or these games or these interactive experiences you know as i said the the devil's in the details our focus has largely been on attention because attention forms the foundation for so many different other aspects of cognition but there can be groups, and we're actually getting ready to do this, that are more tar that are targeting more directly things like empathy and compassion, or other groups looking at decision making or long term thinking. the The goal is that we are smarter as a species. We are more thoughtful. We are kinder. We are more reflective. We are more engaged in the moment, not just thinking in the future, but capable of being incredibly present. That we are just upped the game, up the level, you know, from a game perspective, you've got to, we need to get this to the next level to deal with modern day challenges. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure challenges in the past would have benefited from better human minds as well. That is the goal here in that through technologies like what we're creating and others are working on as well, we can advance the function of the human brain and help resolve some of the cognition crisis that is so detrimental to our species and really we're feeling, you know, the impact of it, I think now more than ever. You talked about in your book, The Distracted Mind, how mm -hmm. technologies is not so much being used to improve our brain, but it has a specific, maybe even detrimental effects on our brain. I want to bring that into context because I, I see a paradox. We were talking about how games can be a powerful tool to induce a state of concentration, but they're also <laughs> a very much a tool to stimulate us away from uh, what we need to do and productivity. So what is your, what is your opinion? It's a great point. It's often very hard for me to give very short interviews. So it's fun that we're doing a longer discussion because it could seem contradictory things that I've written and, and um, views that I have expressed. Uh, because I do talk about both sides and it, I don't find it contradictory. I think both sides exist simultaneously and that's mm -hmm. what makes it challenging and interesting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've talked a lot about the promise of technology and that's what I spend all of my time focusing on, whether it's through companies that I'm investing in or forming or my research, my public speaking, my writing is really how do we leverage all sorts of technology, both on the recording side and on the interactive experiential side to elevate our minds. But there is a lot of data. I wrote a whole book really focusing on the challenges of technology in terms of distracting us and stressing us. It's quite visible probably to most people that if they're engaging um, in social media all the time and not 
you know, getting out into nature, interacting with friends face to face, there's a burden for that that is quite apparent and the data is quite clear. And it really cascades across all aspects of our life. It could be safety issues if you're doing you know, it while driving, if distracted while driving, it could, it could affect your relationships if you're not really taking the time to look each other in the eye and really give true singular focused attention to someone that's important to you. It could degrade your productivity at school or work or studying. And so it's fair to couch any conversation about the potential benefits of technology in the current day challenges. Uh, because we need to not ignore it, embrace it, recognize it at the very least, mm. and then move forward from here. So it seems to me that as a practitioner of trying to improve my brain plasticity, there can be this technology that you're investigating and researching, like Endeavor, but there also has to be that other side that I'm conscious and living in the present and being able to be somebody that takes care of for themselves and also takes care of others by being empathetic and emotionally intelligent. Undoubtedly. Uh, th these tools that we're creating are not meant to be everything you do in your life. And I always have to count and frame my goals at creating interactive experiences as medicine in that this should not be keeping people out of nature, it should not be preventing people from being physically engaged in face-to-face contexts. We're building tools, and whether you think of them as medicines or educational products or learning uh, approaches that are meant to be used in time-limited doses <laughs> and to, for, to give you benefit to live a richer, fuller life, not to become the end all of what you do. In your experience, what are the things that, let's say, you do? You know, we're talking about going outside a little bit, also being invested in, in challenging games, perhaps. What are the things that you practice in your own life that you think have an effect on your cognition, positive effect on your cognition? You know, I try to practice what I preach. And I am frequently asked not just about video games and the technologies we create, but what do you do to have a healthier brain and a healthier brain as you get older? Like I'm 52 years old, my brain is aging, like all of our brains. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that I want to live a rich, vibrant, happy life. I have a new daughter, I, you know, I, I want to keep my brain healthy. And so as we work on these science fiction, you know, <laughs> sounding projects of AI, VR type of tools, what do we do in the meanwhile? And, and I would say the ingredients to the recipe are there and the exact ratios, the exact recipe is something we're still working on, but the ingredients are pretty clear. I would say uh, physical fitness. So I exercise every day and if you don't have access to equipment, even taking a walk has shown to be beneficial, but moving your body, challenging yourself physically, whether it's in an exercise program, I do a lot of hiking. I think that that is probably the strongest evidence for keeping a healthy brain is physical fitness. Mm -hmm. And then social interactivity and engagement. Uh, it could be cognitive challenges like video games and other types of uh, technology-based challenges, but it could also be interacting with friends and playing real world games that aren't digitally uh, based and not being lonely, being socially interactive is another important part. Uh, sleep. I, I have a child now, as I said, so sleep <laughs> is definitely not my strongest suit right now, but we know that sleep, healthy, good, restorative sleep is key towards brain health. And then there's many aspects of nutrition that are, that are important and still being formulated um, I try to eat as close to what's known as the Mediterranean diet as possible. There's a lot of great nutritional work that's being done now to try to elucidate that better. So those are those are the facts that I you know try to live by until we have you know, and I don't think it'll ever be replaced by these technology tools that we're discussing. But that's something that is accessible to most people to do those things in their lives. Who like who would have guessed it? The body and the brain is designed to be outside doing exercise. <laughs> Like you can kill many of those birds with one stone if you just go do a pickup game of soccer and socialize, <laughs> do exercise. 
have a challenging brain exercise as well and then you sleep better because you're physically tired you're preaching to the choir right now <laughs> good um there's another thing that uh, it's interesting and we can conclude this by talking about this idea that you heard it the first time introduced by you but i've kind of seen maybe some parallel ideas on philosophy and other fields the concept of non-stanks mm. the eternal now what does it mean to you? Just a little background on Nunc Stance and why I was talking about it, because I, I was invited to a longevity conference, which I thought was a strange place for me because I'm not very interested in longevity. I mean, of course, I want to live longer, but I have spent my entire career focusing on living better. How do we live better for longer, right? Mm -hmm. Who wants to live longer if it's not at a high, <laughs> at a high level? So I, to me, the pursuit of longer in isolation is misdirected. So gotcha. in speaking at a conference on longevity, I wanted to really focus on what it means to live better in the moment. And I asked many, many, I asked three of my friends that are in their seventies, what they thought about longevity and living a good life. And one of them, uh, Mickey Hart, he's actually the drummer from the Grateful Dead and a oh dear God. friend of mine, <laughs> he brought up um, uh, Nunkstanz and I, did, I never even heard of it. Told me like, this is the eternal now. And I looked it up, it's a philosophy from the 17th century. And uh, it, it's a really interesting one. Of course, it's not really obtainable. It's sort of like how omniscience or like views of God are idealized, but they're not obtainable by, by people. It's essentially like the opposite of existing eternally. Like, so the goal is not to live forever. Nunkstens is the, the opposite of living forever. It's the eternal now. The, the idea is that you can experience all of time in a single moment, but that moment never ends. That's the et eternal now. I thought it was really beautiful when I read about it. It's like, oh yeah, if you could live all of life in a moment in all its richness, that's another idealized way of, of sort of perfection and paradise. Mm -hmm. How I connected that to reality, because uh, it's while it's beautiful and poetic and philosophical, it's not obviously not obtainable, but it does really relate to something that is real in the brain and in our lives. And that is that your perception of time, temporal attention is intimately related to attention. If you attend to something, time is longer. Um, you know, if you've, I've been on a 10 day meditation retreat, which feels like it might as well be a year because it's all about attention mm -hmm. or you drive your car and you're driving back and you're not paying attention at all. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm home. That was like an hour felt like three minutes, right? You just mm -hmm. lost your attention. And so if, if, if attention and, and perception of time are so related, then I would say, if you want to live a better, longer life, pay attention to it. <laughs> And essentially you will <laughs> because you will have much more perception of the length of that time. And if attention is focused well, it will be better. Right. It seems to also have this quality of effortlessness, would you say? Or do mm. you think that is something that we do, right? Because we, in order to lose ourselves or, or meditate into... Like when you said meditation, we need to be able to have that I, that skill of living in the now. Mm -hmm. And that seems to, as you were talking about, have a real effect mm -hmm. on, on how we perceive our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it's what we mean by mindfulness in a way, right? It's, uh, it's attention to behavior and to the moment, not just in a meditation experience, but all the time. And I would say it requires great effort when you're learning how to do it, like all new skills do, mm. all most new skills. Um, but then once it is practiced and embodied, it requires less effort. So in the future, 20 years or 30 years from now, we'll see a game called Nunk's Dance by, <laughs> by Adam Gazzaili. <laughs> it's a good idea. <laughs> hey, Adam, I enjoyed our conversation. I wish we could talk for a long longer, but I know you had some time on your hands and you have stuff to do. I really appreciate you for being here. And um, thank you. Thank you so much for this. This was so much fun for me. 
my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. And when you reached out to me and you had so many great ideas of what you wanted to talk about, it was, it was irresistible. So I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Nice. It's nice to hear feedback because uh, as I'm starting to be, I, I want to grow this podcast and try to get more guests. It's nice to know maybe like means and methods that I could get people interested in. And uh, your research just captivated me. In this scenario, I was so invested. I, I'm a person that um, is a practitioner of gaming. And I'm really wondering what does it mean, right? Mm -hmm. What does gaming in our lives mean? Does it have a biological purpose? Does it mm -hmm. have a evolutionary purpose in, our, in, in humanity? And I think when I looked at your research, it really grounded some of those ideas and it was super interesting to, to be able to, to ask you this. Well, thank you. I had a good time today as well. well.